For a very long time, boards were not asked to be representative of the people who they serve, the, the communities in which they operate, and their larger stakeholder base. So kind of like the government, when the government doesn't represent the people, the government starts making all sorts of decisions that don't always reflect the needs of all the people. Welcome to a special edition of The Ripple Effect. I'm Dan Loney. In honor of Juneteenth this month, Senior Advisor to the Dean for the Coalition of Equity and Opportunity, Kenneth Shropshire, will be your special guest host. In each episode this month, Ken and Wharton faculty are focusing on the critical themes of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you could apply to your life and work. So get ready to dive into this special edition of The Ripple Effect with guest host Ken Shropshire. Well, the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion has so many different facets to it. One, though, is how corporate boards are thinking about these topics as we move forward. Pleasure to be joined by Stephanie Curry, who's an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School, and as well, our friend Ken Shropshire of the Wharton School. And Ken, let me start with you because the larger scale the role that the board has in really kind of getting this process set and rolling becomes a very important one, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. So, so the board can uh, apply pressure, uh, can move forward regulations or, or whatever new standards a company might want. But we see a lot of this in a lot of different areas. We might see it in you know, cybersecurity or whatever else. And boards can be silent on this or they can go full speed ahead and make it their major issue. So so I'm anxious to speak with Stephanie about her extensive work in the space and to see if we can help leaders out there and board members out there on doing better. Well, and as I said, Stephanie has uh, just a wealth of, of knowledge in this area, so I will let you two have your conversation. A pleasure to be joined, Stephanie, having you back on the show. Thanks for your time today. Uh, thanks for having me. And so here you go, Ken Shropshire and Stephanie Curry. Thanks, Dan. Stephanie, my good friend. Yes. This is this is so. This is the uh, the old and and the relatively new, uh, but but Stephanie and I have, have become uh, <laughs> great friends and colleagues in the, our short time of, of knowing each other. And, and Stephanie, before we talk about boards as our primary focus, I, I was thinking mm-hmm. about you know kind of the old school, new school kind of thinking about this and you know before me there's you know uh, emancipation reconstruction equal protection Um, even before me too are the kind of the the world war ii kind of activities that took place and then you got brown versus board you've got the the civil rights kind of laws that happened in the in the early 60s then we've got the affirmative action kind of moment. And then we have the re- retrenchment from affirmative action. We have kind of this negative period. And then George Floyd was kind of this moment forward. Where are we now in this whole DEI space as we're, as we're characterizing everything, which could be a whole nother show about what we should characterize this, this whole space as. But, but where, are, where are we now? And, and then we'll talk about boards. So. Yeah, so Ken, we're in a we're in a, a really interesting time. I think if you were to ask me this question in 2017 when I arrived at the Wharton School, I would tell you that the students who I teach, who you know you had taught, um, believe that we didn't have a race problem in America still, and certainly that wasn't a problem. Race wasn't an issue that we needed to discuss outside of 
the U.S. borders. And so that was six years ago. And so I would say that there had been previously a lot of indifference amongst uh, uh, citizens in the U.S., around the world, and certainly amongst companies in taking up topics of, of race. So I would say if, if you were to dra- dry a, a graph based on the things that you talked about, there's sort of an uptick at key, po- key points in time, key moments around civil rights legislation, um, et cetera. And then I would say 70s, 80s, 90s, keep, I, I think we would start to see like a downswing uh, in, in the numbers of activities that corporations were engaging around this topic, schools, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, the interesting part is uh, the, the first movement, if you will, was around 2014 and 2016. Um, I always talk about that as the first Black Lives Matter movement when we actually thought that the Black Lives Matter movement was sort of some extremist group, right? We didn't have a lot of clear understanding. I say we, uh, meaning you think that on average citizen didn't have an understanding of, of what these issues were. They didn't understand why people were talking about police brutality, et cetera. So we started to see some interest in, in 2014 and 2016 in the general population. Obviously, Colin Kaepernick started kneeling. We didn't think that was a great thing back then. Um, and then 2020 happens. And then it's this sort of this explosion of interest in talking about racism systemic racism, which was something that was, I would say, new in our vocabulary as everyday citizens. Um, and then we saw an explosion of interest in this topic outside of the U.S. and not necessarily talking about American black lives. They were talking about Japanese lives and Nigerian lives and people who are from historically marginalized ethnic groups in their countries. So, you know, sum it up, where we are is um, in a place where there's a heightened attention to this topic, we still don't all agree on whether or not racism is an issue or how to address it. But I would say that for people like yourself and myself who study these topics, it's a good time to be studying and talking about it because there is significant interest in, in knowing more and learning what we can do. Now, that, that's that's a great catch up. And it, it is, I mean, it's that's horrible, horrible phrasing on your part. It's a great time to be studying. Yeah. I guess it is. It's it's not great that we're studying it. I guess so. so it, is a, it is a fantastic time for people that are interested in trying to trying to solve these these issues. And, and leaders really play a, a role in this. And, and this gets us to to boards and thinking about what boards do with companies. So why do we care to, to to get to it directly? Why do we care about and I want to be specific about the diversity that we're talking about. Why do we care about more Blacks and Latinos on boards, as well as other diverse groups? What what difference does it make in the context of, of what we're talking about? I mean, what is it? What can companies do, and then what can boards do to make companies do that? So I'm going to tell you what the ideal is, and then I'm going to tell you what I actually study because these are two different things, right? <laughs> So the ideal is, is that boards act as strategic advisors to their firms, but also as people who monitor the firm's activities and help the firm to make sure that it's complying with all that's expected of them from a variety of stakeholder groups. So that's compliance monitoring on the one side and the other side, it's a strategic uh, position, strategic advisory position. So, so on a good day, what we want a board to be able to do is to help the firm understand its customer base, um, the communities it operates in, 
um, and to really understand how its products and services um, can help to solve the needs, um, met and unmet needs of, of people in who, who are part of the stakeholder uh, network, right? Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, as, as corporations, they, they do have responsibilities to the societies that allow them to exist. So here in the U.S., publicly traded companies have um, you know, relationships with with the government, right? And in the government, uh, especially in heavily regulated areas like or industries like finance, expect for the firm to be following um, whatever regulations it has set forth. So this gets back to representation. When the board is not representative of stakeholders, doesn't understand the needs of stakeholder groups, we have a problem. And so for a very long time, Boards were not asked to be representative of the people who they serve, the the communities in which they operate or their larger stakeholder base. So kind of like the government, when the government doesn't represent the people, the government starts making all sorts of decisions that don't always reflect the needs of all the people. So the ideal is that we have a diverse board, and in this case, a racially diverse board that also represents the interests Uh, and perspectives of people from a variety of of racial groups. So that's the ideal, is that these boards will raise issues that are pertinent to the livelihoods of various stakeholder groups, and they will make sure that the CEO, the management team, understands um, in the activities that they engage in how how to address these stated groups' needs. Um, But that's not what I study. What I study is... Uh, why and how, why boards do not do that, right? Why uh, diversity or diversifying a board has been so problematic? Um, why is it that even if you have a diverse board, they may not necessarily uh, uh, engage in activities that meet your needs or my needs? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a it's a conversation that, you know, I hope to continue to build through my own research. I think the conversation about board diversity has spent a lot of time focusing on uh, getting a more diverse board will help us to perform better without fully understanding what the mechanism is that would explain that. Um, but it is an important question, but it also requires us to not just focus on uh, diversity for diversity's sake, but to understand uh, that the people who are on the boards are still people. We want them to make decisions that are helpful for us all. Okay. So let, let me probe, probe a little bit more then as, as someone who sits on a public board and, and thinks about this issue a little bit. A financial board. Yes. Right. Financial <laughs> board. And whenever, whenever I am trying to be anybody who wants to be on a board, the, the smart question is always, well, what's in the best interest of the shareholders? I mean, that, that becomes yeah. the ultimate kind of, stakeholder question and and as a lawyer said all the legal cases you go to delaware courts in the end was that board member acting in the best interest of the shareholders and often and you may tell me too often that goes to share price share value that that's kind of how you translate what's what's in the best interest how, how does that conflict or how does that meld with this idea of issues that are important with regard to DEI are in the best interests of, of the company. Yeah. So so in the last few years, uh, big institutional investors like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard 
have made the topic of board diversity one of their greatest priorities. And when you read their position papers, they, they speak a lot about you know, the potential for enhanced financial performance from, in, from increased board diversity. They cite all the academic research on this topic. They cite consulting firms' research on this topic. But beyond that, what they talk about is risk, which you can appreciate as a lawyer, <laughs> the language of, of risk. And the language of risk comes, uh, is one such that if we don't know um, our neighbors and understand what their needs are, if we are missing um, targeting our products and services to, to certain communities, if we are not following and complying with the regulations that are um, you know, given to us to abide by as it relates to particular racial groups, then we might have a problem that might hurt our financial performance. And so while there's a lot of the conversation around how do we increase you know, our market size and, and generate revenue by uh, being able to gain entry into diverse markets, there's that whole conversation. Lately, the conversation has been about risk mitigation. And that's something that shareholders care about is losing money because we haven't uh, effectively monitored all of the costs. So even if you don't have the bottom line information about this will help you be more profitable mm -hmm. as a board member, be aware that there may be other externalities that will come at you and cost the company money, which will impact the bottom line. Yeah. You don't act positively in these ways. And this, and this gets captured not only in this DEI kind of conversation, but also in the, the ESG conversation, the, the S, the S, of, of the ESG conversation. How, how, how you mentioned some big name companies, enterprises that are aware of this and, and highlighting this. How universal is that understanding now in, in, in your work, in your conversations? Uh, are you enlightening companies yeah. to the broader concern or, or is it something that, that seems to be in the atmosphere? Yeah, so I was, uh, so before coming to Wharton, I was a professor at Cornell, and one of my students um, who ended up, uh, you know, working with me on a variety of research projects, uh, moved on to State Street um, as State Street Global Advisors, and he works in the unit that has put out all this guidance to firms on uh, what they should be doing. Initially, it was around gender diversity several years back, and then more recently, it was around racial diversity. So Ryan uh, and his team and I have had a number of conversations. They've interviewed me and a number of other uh, people who you probably know who are on boards um, to talk about, like, what does this conversation look like? What's an institutional investor's role in it? And because Ryan was my former student, he has come to Wharton. And he, he has actually come and sat in on my diversity classes and actually taught our students. And the interesting thing is, is we have another student at the Wharton School in, a, in, a MBA, in our MBA program who used to work in Ryan's same role at Vanguard. And so this past fall, it was interesting to hear them talk about uh, their shared responsibilities around meeting with board chairs and helping them to understand why this topic was important and why they should continue to keep uh, topics around diversity, racial equity, gender equity at the top of their conversation. So I would say from the perspective of big institutional investors, yes, there's certainly 
a lot of attention. Now, they're not the only investors, but they do tend to hold. I mean, think about, as, as Ryan explained to me, think about your, you know, we don't have a 401k, we have a 413b, but you think about your retirement plans and, and who's managing that money. Those are the folks, those are the entities that are going and meeting with board chairs to say, hey, what are you doing with people's retirement monies? And are you paying attention to ESG and DEI and racial equity? Um, how is the company doing? And is the board actually doing its job to hold the company accountable? So from our perspective or from my, my perspective, when I see the big institutional players doing so much of this work, I think that it's, um, you know, it's an indicator that of its prominence. But in, in my own daily activities, working with my former student, who is obviously a professional doing you know, amazing work around this, and then meeting people in our own MBA class who have also taken up the role. The, the last thing I want to say about this is, um, you know, when you were talking about history and, and I started thinking about generations, I, I'm a generation Xer, right? So I'm kind of in between, I would say, a generation of, of, of one type of activism and another type of activism, and Ryan, he is oh, he he will define himself as a white American male, which I find super fascinating. Um, given I think about who traditionally tends to take up these issues, Ryan is also in his late twenties, as are is the average age of our MBA students. And the MBA student who was also taking up this issue around racial equity at Vanguard was a white female. And so for me as a Generation Xer, watching who's actually doing this work and who's trying to hold the boards accountable, it's not people who look like you and me, Ken. It's (laughs) actually people who are in their late 20s and and white Americans who have strong um, sentiments around this topic's importance. And and, and that's that's the question I want to ask you before we start to to close out. Mm -hmm. Because I was in the New York Times recently, there was a a discussion about a, a new dictionary that Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates has coming out on the African-American language. Mm-hmm. Some stuff. And it's got all these terms that I, I kind of chuckled to myself as I heard heard some of them that are not broadly known to the rest of the world. <laughs> but but the one that may or may not be in there is, as you were saying, this, I was thinking about good white folks. Mm-hmm. And he kind of has framing like this. Yeah. And when I think about that, and, and this is, you know, within the culture, white folks that are doing good stuff that are down kind of as, as you're describing. So, so knowing that, knowing that that can happen, going back to the beginning of this conversation, how important or what kind of signaler is the diversity of the board that this work will actually be, be done? I mean, can't, can't the board be peopled by good white folks or Ryan and or as, as we're describing this and how important is it just as a, as a proxy to have a diverse board? Yeah, it's certainly a question that I'm asked a lot, especially now that we have this new generation that has done a lot to begin to understand the lived experiences of other people. So that is so important. And I will talk about these folks as allies, right? Uh, a whole lot of my work, including my work on board diversity, the academic side of it, is looking at allyship and how that happens and, and how that works and why that's important on board. So it is so important that allies like Ryan and, and this, this student who's a Wharton MBA student exist and, and that they are talking about these issues. But that's not a replacement or that's not a substitute for people who actually come from these communities have these backgrounds, have these experiences, 
who are reflective of these subsets. Um, you know, there is, I don't want to call it a nuance because that sounds like I'm marginalizing the experience, but th there's a difference. There's a difference experience that you have when you walk around um, in that body, in a black body, in an African-American body in the U.S. and you navigate the professional workforce. And heck, when you navigate what it's like to be a board member, often one of you know, 13, right? One person who is uh, underrepresented and the other 12, for example, might be all white. There's a lot more that comes with that than can be just, I think, subsumed by somebody who just learned about it from talking to other people. But allies are important, but people who have the lived experience, the shared experiences of navigating these companies uh, are important as well. That said, I want to say that just because you're black doesn't mean that you have the same lived experience as another black person. And so in my research, what I try to talk about is, um, you know, understanding that um, when we're thinking about board diversity, um, we are trying to actually capture not just the brown person or the black person on the board. When we're talking about racial diversity, we're trying to capture the perspective. And so let's say, for example, um, I'm probably going to get in trouble when I say this. It is great if everyone on our board got their MBA from the Wharton School, right? Lots of us would be really, really, really happy. Um, and so sometimes what happens is people say, well, we need another woman or we need another black person. Let's look and see who else graduated from the Wharton MBA program. So while that's nice, it actually hasn't truly created, uh, in, in many cases, the diversity that the board is seeking. Because that network is small, they are, they've probably been taught very similar ways of thinking about businesses. Um, and so I think one of the next stages for companies today is when they're thinking about record, recruiting a, a diverse board to step outside their alma mater network, right? To step outside their client network and to really try to uh, find people for the board who are not only on the surface different because they have different color skin or they have a different gender identity or whatnot. Um, it's also to think about, you know, when we're recruiting a diverse board, we want everyone to bring different things to the table. And, and that's where I think the, the set of opportunities are for boards today. So Stephanie, it's so exciting to speak with you. It's, it's so reminiscent of your Professor David Thomas, who started the Warden School with me so many years years ago, so I, I am glad to have his presence here in in your form, in your unique way. It's uh, it, it's also just just the big takeaway for me is, is this idea of thinking about the task of the board member, demographics being important. I also also think about and this is not shouldn't leave this as the last thought, but it just just reverberated with me as you said it. I think about excuse the politics of this, but I think about when Thurgood Marshall was stepping off the court mm -hmm. and he was asked whether or not his replacement needed to be black. And he said, essentially, you know, if it's a black snake or a white snake, it still bites. I mean, he wanted somebody that had uh, the presence to make the decisions in the court that were looking out for the interest of, of civil rights matters in a way that he did, no matter who that, who that person was. Mm -hmm. And color was the guiding light. So I, I appreciate every everything I've learned from you today. Thank you so much. And thank you to both of you for coming on this show today, Ken and Stephanie. And thank you to everybody joining us, listening to this edition of The Ripple Effect.
Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.